is uh, a gentleman from the island, the atoll of Sarawa in Micronesia. He was an extraordinary wayfinder, an extraordinary navigator, and uh, he had the foresight to come to Hawaii to help in the process of uh, Hawaiians and therefore Polynesians relearning uh, non-instrument navigation in the 70s. That was Na'elehu Anthony. He was talking about Mao Pialu, who was the subject of Anthony's documentary, Papa Mao, The Wayfinder. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. During the 1970s, a small group of Hawaiians formed the Polynesian Voyaging Society with the goal of building a canoe in the ancient style. Their dream was to sail this double-hulled canoe named the Hokulea from Hawaii to Tahiti using traditional navigation, the stars, the wind, and the sea. The problem was they were missing a critical piece. The ancient art of navigation was lost in Hawaii. To recreate the ocean paths recounted in oral traditions, the Hawaiian sailors turned to a man from the tiny island of Satawal in Micronesia. Mao Pialung, or Papa Mao, was a wayfinder. He held the secrets to open sea canoe navigation, and he was eager to share them. He agreed not only to serve as navigator on the Hakulea's maiden voyage from Hawaii to Tahiti, he became a teacher and mentor to the Hawaiians who wanted to reclaim this heritage. That union of navigator and canoe had a tremendous impact, not just in Hawaii, but across the Pacific, generating an interest in the ancient art of boat building and navigation as far away as New Zealand. It had awakened such pride and interest in Hawaiian culture that the period became known as the Hawaiian Renaissance. And it demonstrated that the Pacific Islands could have been deliberately colonized by people arriving from the West, giving the people of the islands a sense of their ancient forebearers, the original voyagers. Naulehu Anthony's film, Papa Mao, The Wayfinder, documents the lasting legacy and central role of Mao Pialong in the revival of traditional voyaging and the subsequent reawakening of cultural pride throughout Polynesia. His film traces the 30 years of interaction between Papa Mao and his Hawaiian students and contains extraordinary footage from the 1976 maiden voyage of the Hakulea. I spoke with Naolehu Anthony at a viewing of his documentary at the All Roads Film Festival, which is a project of National Geographic. All Roads provides a platform for the work of indigenous filmmakers from around the world. I began our conversation by asking Naolehu to recall the cultural displacement felt by many Hawaiians in the 1970s. The historic voyage that Papa Mao navigated took place in 1976. And it really came out of the upheaval that was going on in Hawaii at that time. What was going on? I think that when you look at many Native cultures in, this, in the Pacific, specifically Hawaii, you see this degradation of all these things that had come the previous hundred years. So in the 70s, Hawaiian language was outlawed in schools for almost 100 years, which meant that there was this generational loss of all of these things that were passed on orally because the language had been had been smothered. And so when there's this reawakening of things, people are having to look 
in different places to find this stuff. So there were all of these fights, if you will, for different native rights, land rights, language rights, the right to just be Hawaiian. And so now it's termed the Hawaiian Renaissance, but you see these, I think these pillars that came back, song and chant, asserting land rights, as well as wanting to relearn some of these traditional knowledges, which voyaging is a huge component. Yes, I think Herb Kane, who's one of the initial voyagers and also one of the founders of the Polynesian Voyaging Society, said canoes are central to Polynesian culture. Absolutely. Without these ocean-going vessels, we would have never connected all these dots. That's Polynesia and Micronesia and Melanesia. And uh, so you had to have the metaphor is that the canoe can only go somewhere if the canoe has eyes, which is the navigator. So they're paired together. The canoe that we're talking about, we're not talking Mm -hmm. about a a kind of European Mm -hmm. canoe. Mm -hmm. It's a Hawaiian canoe, and that's Mm -hmm. very particular. Can Mm -hmm. you give us a visual description of that? Sure. In the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research going on, some of it particularly by Herb Kane, to look at all the different designs of canoes that had existed all throughout Polynesia. And he had looked at uh, early drawings that had that. Cook's voyages had produced, and they had looked at all these different pieces of what was left of this canoe culture. And so what he ended up drawing as the the marine architect for the actual building of Hokulea was a 62-foot by 20-foot performance-accurate replica of what would have existed 600 years prior in these large voyages that had gone on between Hawaii and Tahiti and Hawaii and Micronesia. So there's two hulls with a deck in between. There's two sails capable of holding maybe 13 or 14 people on board and having enough food and water for 30-plus days of open ocean sailing. Now, I was really surprised at how important rebuilding that canoe, how important Mm -hmm. that was to a resurgence of Hawaiian culture. Mm -hmm. I think that when you look at all of the pieces of culture that were lost by that point and the fact that we were almost fully colonized into this Western mindset that not only did the canoe provide an actual image of how our people got there, but it proved that these people were very, very sophisticated and could do these unthinkable tasks of taking a canoe in open ocean for 2,500 miles and pulling land out of the sea. And so it wasn't just this visible character that you could see and touch and feel, but it changed the way Hawaiians felt about themselves because of these acts that had been done a thousand years before. And traditional navigation, which uses the sea and the stars Mm -hmm. and the wind. Mm -hmm. Traditional navigation being anything that you have available to you in your natural environment that you can read. So as you train for it, you can start to read the swells and understand that there are islands out there that are refracting swells. You can start to read the wind and uh, know what the dominant wind pattern is going to be. And then also, obviously, the stars, the celestial bodies that are going to give you uh, very detailed clues as to what direction you're going and where land is. In fact, in Hawaii, this was a lost art, and you had to go to Micronesia to find somebody who still... It seemed like some miracle Mm -hmm. retained this. Mm -hmm. Very much so. There were these large pieces missing in the fabric of what canoe culture had been. And that had disappeared in the last 100 or 150 Mm -hmm. years. Amazing. And so one of the large pieces that was missing was uh, non-instrument navigation. And it was a miracle that there was someone so young who was willing to take 
this piece of knowledge and take it outside his family and place it in the hands of others because that wasn't traditionally done. Outside his family, outside his island. Outside his family, outside his island, outside of his culture. He, I mean, that was Papa Mao. That was Mao, yeah. And he paid for that. When he went home, people weren't happy with that, that he had given this knowledge somewhere else. But he had his reasons. Mm. Why do you think he did decide mm. to impart this knowledge outside mm. of family, island, mm. his own culture? I mean, I had heard from many people as to why he chose to do that. And I asked him that in the, in the interview sets that we did in Sadawal in 2005. And his primary motivation was that he's a very astute observer. That's what navigation is. And he could see around the corner of what was coming when it came to westernization in his islands and that there was a new religion flowing through and there was this new economy flowing through. And that was going to bring Western goods and services in a cash economy, which would change the construct of this collective to this individualistic economy, which changes the whole idea of how you do what you do every day, and that he knew that navigation would wane in his island and it had to be planted somewhere else so that it could persist past being lost in his island group. Mm. And so he wanted to make sure that it would it would move forward at any cost. And so that meant that he took it outside of the family, outside of the island, and put it somewhere where people would, would embrace it. So Herb Kane, Shorty Bertelsman, Ben Finney and others built the Hakulea and they wanted to find a traditional navigator. How did they find Papa Mao? It's kind of this bizarre story. It was, it was one of those stories that's just meant to be, it's my understanding, Mao had taken a job on a fishing boat teaching fishermen how he fished traditionally and that they were merging this Western concept of how they fished. And he was in Honolulu at one of the docks in port while they were taking on supplies. And there had been a Peace Corps worker who uh, Ben Finney and Herb Kane knew who had lived in Sadawal with Mao. So they were looking around for a Polynesian navigator, they, Finney and, and Herb Kane, and they couldn't find anybody in all of Polynesia. They were searching all these small atolls. And somehow word got back to this Peace Corps worker, and he said, oh, I know a navigator. His name is Mao Piailog. He's down at the docks. And so they went to go and talk with him, and my understanding is that just his, just the, the ferocity of his character led them to believe that he would be a great candidate to help them in this quest to take this canoe to Tahiti. In 1976, he's the navigator mm-hmm. as the boat that they built, uh-huh. Hokulea, mm-hmm. sails from Hawaii to Tahiti. How many miles is this? It's roughly 2,500 miles, and it was uh, 30 days and by all accounts, everyone is in agreement that he rarely slept. The issue of navigation is memorizing where you came from to know where you are. And so if you sleep, then you have a little piece of missing information. Those three hours that you slept, you don't know exactly how far you went or exactly what direction you were going. And because it was a novice crew, Mao said that he was really nervous. And so he, he would sleep much less than he normally would so that he could keep track of all the direction and all the miles to make sure that he was accurate. And in a lot of ways, it was an unhappy voyage. Yeah, yeah. There was conflict between scientists Mm -hmm. who were typically not Hawaiians Mm -hmm. and Hawaiians Mm -hmm. who were there for cultural reasons, not Mm -hmm. scientific pursuit. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very early lesson that I think voyages subsequent to that had to take into account that the goal had to be one single goal 
and that on this voyage there were two separate goals, I think, in the scientific strains of wanting to know how many calories people were burning and whether or not this was possible to make it just like it was a thousand years prior, and that there were these Native Hawaiians on board who saw this as this reawakening of a pathway that would give them not only cultural pride, but would start to build these bonds back that existed in the Pacific as one nation. And that those two goals are fine to have when you're separate, doing your own thing, but as you get onto one canoe... One for 30 is, days. For 30 days, one is going gonna, is gonna to push into the other as you go. And, and it's hard to be on a boat for 30 days anyway. I want to shift focus now and talk about your project. We're here because you made a film, Papa Mal, The Wayfinder. Let's talk about the origins of that. How did you come to the project? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. I'm a crew member on board the canoes, so I've sailed with Hokulea for uh, many years. So I knew about this story for a long time, and uh, what I do in my filmmaking role is a lot of times I'll do oral histories and just capturing stories that are in and around our community that maybe people haven't had the opportunity to pass on to others. And so that being one of our major initiatives in the filmmaking aspect, we came together one night at dinner and started talking about just doing an oral history with him to get his thoughts about what 30 years of this relationship that had built with Hawaii and Micronesia through him was like and what he thought it did and how it may have changed either of the cultures from his perspective. So that sent us on, on this six-year journey to make the film that we, we came up with. What brought you to film? And documentary film on top of that? The, the canoe. I was a crew member first. I was a crew member before, before I was a filmmaker. It was a, just this really interesting set of circumstances. It was, I hadn't intended it that way. I didn't go to film school. I still haven't gone to film school. But what it allowed me to do in an edit and evoke emotion from a viewer and find all of these, these things that you can do in the medium that you can't do anywhere else, I think is uh, what, what took me there. Because you are, aside from being a documentary filmmaker, also mm -hmm. a voyager, that gave you, I would imagine, access to him. Mm -hmm. So he was willing, perhaps, to talk to you on film mm -hmm. where he might not in right. other circumstances. Right, right. The process, anytime you engage an elder in this process of, of capturing a story, there's always a bit of relationship building that has to be done. I was fortunate in that he knew who I was and he knew that I was part of the Canoe family, so that broke down a bunch of barriers, but you still go through this process. When he when he was in, in town in Honolulu for his diabetes treatment, he would stay for a month, maybe a month and a half at a time. So uh, I'd call to the house that he was staying at and ask if I could come by, and uh, I would just come and bring him fish and poi and some drink, and he'd, he'd always want something that he's not supposed to have, like, you know, juice or anything with sugar in it, and, and I'd come and we'd just talk, and we'd talk and talk and just about anything, and then I waited for him to ask, well, when are we going to start shooting interviews? And when are we going to start to have these conversations on tape? And that's how you moved forward from that point. Yeah, on. you know, there's there's all these, these kind of bridges you cross in the process that in that initial conversation I hadn't really thought of until we started to come upon it. I mean, his English was really good, but do you interview someone in English or do you allow him to choose his best capacity to be eloquent and speak his native language, Sarawalese. And so when we got there, 
to to this bridge, I thought, no, we should ask him. We should see. And he wanted to do it in Sarawali, so that meant we had to have somebody translating as we went, which we figured out. Then the next question became, well, where would you want to interview him to make him most comfortable and set the scene that would be most representative of what he's talking about? And so that meant going to Sarawal, which opens up a whole other set of questions as you kind of move forward. Now, the original voyage took place in 1976. You use a lot of footage from the original voyage in your film. How did you get this footage? Oh, my goodness. Um, because there's footage, yeah, there's of that footage of that voyage. Where yeah. did you get that? One of the Hawaiians who was the first crew member, who is still a crew member, who is one of my, my uh, dear friends, in 2007, we were sailing on Hokulea to Sarawal to honor Mao. And he and I were on the same watch. He was my watch captain, and it was the two to six watch. So two in the morning to six in the morning. Not a lot to do. You're mostly steering, and, and you're not doing any maintenance. It's nighttime. You're quiet. But you talk a lot. And so I was telling him about this project and this documentary. And we knew each other, but you get to be really good friends on these, these kind of experiences, you know, 40 days of sailing. And in the middle of it, he said, oh, you know, I shot a bunch of 8 millimeter film footage on the voyage. Would you like to use it? And I, and I just, you know, licking my chops, thinking like, well, sure. I mean, how much of it did you shoot? Does it exist? Where is it? Whatever. He says, when we get home, I'll get you the box, right? And so, true to form, we're home a week, and he brings me this old, dusty, crusty box that hadn't been opened since the 70s. And he had shot 32 or 33 8-millimeter film reels on a little handheld 8-millimeter camera that he had only watched after he had it developed and then put it away. It had never been transferred. It had never been out of the envelopes. He had the original letter that he sent to Kodak when he had it developed. Oh and I just couldn't wait to see it. I took it to the to the place that would do it in Hawaii, and he transferred everything. And then we started looking at it, and it was just it was this treasure trove of all these images of these early guys and early footage, and then building things and fishing and doing all this other stuff. And so um, that became like the 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 real thread that I could use to tell the early story. So uh, initially, we didn't know how far back we'd have to go, nor could we go that far back without the the images. So that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, some really amazing stuff. So because you had the original footage, we get to see the Hakulea arrive in Tahiti, and what a reception it got. Right. I mean, just unbelievable reception. I mean, they, I think it was more than three-quarters of the whole island showed up. 17,000 people. Yeah. There's, all, there's these photos from the top of the mast looking down where all you can see is a sea of people. You yeah. can't see any water. And for Tahitians, too, it was like this dream had come true, and this bond was being forged that, that these unintended consequences of what would become this voyaging movement to relearn and and uh, reignite that fire. But it wasn't particularly happy for Mao. He was very disappointed in his crew. Yeah. I mean, I alluded to it earlier. There's a, um, there's an ethic on board the canoe. There's a way you behave when you're at sea in that you are putting each other's lives in each other's hands, you know, and that you have to have that bond of family before you can go to sea successfully. And they didn't have that. They were coming from two different schools of thought, the crew. And that as things got tumultuous, Mao was worried that that would jeopardize the voyage and therefore each other's lives. And, and that's not how you behave. It's, a, it's an ethic thing. And so he said, 
that he didn't want to participate going home, and he left. That must have been quite a blow for the crew members. Absolutely. I mean, it's not something that people talk about. If you look at it in the film, the way we handled it, it was because every interview that we started to broach a subject of, you know, why he left and what happened on board, people were very selective about what they talked about. And we tried not to open old wounds with crew members, but you have to address that he left in order to know how important it was that he came back. So you, you had to address it in the film. You couldn't just gloss over it. But by 1980, Papa Mao has come back as a teacher now of traditional navigation. He wanted to make sure that he planted this seed somewhere else. When he came back, then he could really engage some of these Hawaiians as students. And luckily, there were those who were just waiting for him to come back. Uh, Shorty Berleman from the Big Island, who was just, I mean, he has the bite of the film, you know, he was... He was just so excited that he could finally learn from somebody. And he says, like, having an ancestor you could finally talk to. So that, that explains the whole thing. So in 1980, this time with Mao's student, Naimoa Thompson, navigating, the Hakulea once again sails to Tahiti. You know, and it's so interesting that when that voyage was completed, using traditional navigation, it really helped reignite an entire revival of Hawaiian culture, Language, art, music, chants. You're seeing that in 30 years later now where um, the traditional chants that are, that are being used are chanted by crew members, that there are crew members who will run a watch all in Hawaiian, that you will have all of these pieces of culture that had been kind of isolated to, oh, this is your piece of culture that you're going to work on, and this is your piece of culture, but now they're all starting to sum together on these larger projects where we see the, the usefulness and how... It must have engaged people many hundreds of years ago to thread it all together. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's fast forward. It's 2001. It's the 25th anniversary of the initial sale. And Shorty Bertelsman, who was on the initial sale, and his brother Clay, both students of Mao, decide they want to build a traditional canoe as a gift to him. Clay had been talking about it for years, and Clay had built his own canoe to service the Big Island and the people there to engage their students in navigation. And the canoes, in, in terms of what they represented culturally as well as what they represented you know, strictly visually, were so powerful that he wanted to provide a cultural icon that Mao could use to help reignite what was going on in Micronesia and help teach. So they went on that process to build that canoe Mao. Clay unfortunately passed away before the canoe was completed, but mm -hmm. the canoe was completed, mm -hmm. and it was sailed to Sadawal. Mm -hmm. And I have a sneaking suspicion you were on that boat. I was. I was. I sailed uh, 45 days through Micronesia. What an experience that must have been for you, because talk about wearing two hats. Clearly, yeah. you had to be a crew member, yeah, but absolutely. at the same time, you're also yeah. being a filmmaker. Yeah. It's probably the most difficult dual role that we have on board the canoe, because you see people working in your automatic thought is to go and help in the work, but then you're stuck just documenting people sitting around if you're always working. So you have to find that balance and uh, make it okay with yourself and then explain it to other crew members that, that the shooting is part of the work and that the fruits of those labors will help to resonate the values of the canoe set much further out than just the 13 people on board. Were the people on board very accepting of this? Pretty much. I mean, they're all my friends. Yeah, They're, they're people that I spend time with on and off the canoe, and, and um, they're my family. And so they understand that, you know, we're working on these projects, and it was important to document. I think that 
the fact that I finally finished and that they get to see the fruit of the labor is going to make it a lot easier for me moving forward in subsequent voyages because uh, they know that we're going to finish. They know that we're capturing good images for the sake of making this story more viable for more communities. 45 days using traditional navigation. What was that like? You know, can I tell you a story? Just a oh, short please story. please do. These islands, I mean, they're not islands that you see in Polynesia proper. They're very, very small. The highest thing on the island is a coconut tree. The, the target we're looking for is a mile long by half a mile wide, Sadawal, right? And there's no other islands around it. So really quickly, like if you're looking for Hawaii, you have the big island, which is 13,000 feet high, and this massive amount of land. So your target is a lot larger because you can see it from so far away. Sadawal, you can, the textbook says you can only see it from nine miles away. And uh, the navigator on Hokulea was one of Mao's students, Nainoa Thompson, I think it's it's less than 300 miles, but it's a very small target to hit, and so you have to be very accurate. And sure enough, it was like the final test for these guys, right? They'd been all over the Pacific. They'd found Rapa Nui and all these places, but this is the final test. You're coming home to see your teacher, yeah? And as we set out to see, this storm comes up behind us. It's this massive storm. It's the best storm footage I've ever gotten on any of the voyages, you know, just, just came down, this high wind, and it sat on us a couple of days and so your wind patterns are messed up your ocean patterns are messed up we couldn't even see the sun rising it was so dark so you don't have any of the visual clues that you would normally have in trying to find these islands and this is a small target and so he had to i know i had to feel his way there he had to do his best and use all of the things that he had learned the 30 years prior to go and bring this canoe home to see his teacher i mean you wouldn't even believe it unless you were there but he brought this island up right between the two hulls. I mean, he was dead on. It wasn't like it was sailing by and there it is on the side off the starboard. It was right between the two hulls. It was the most amazing thing I've, I've ever felt, that he didn't need those clues anymore. He had now graduated into this other realm of how to navigate. That's amazing. And you presented... We presented this canoe. You presented the canoe. Yeah. But then there was a ceremony. There was. It's the ceremony of Poe in yeah. which people are made master navigators. Yeah. It's like the mantle is passed on. Exactly. Was there any issue about filming that? At that point, I mean, I was coming back, right? I had already shot there previously a couple years prior, so I knew everybody. And I still went through the process, and I asked Mao if I could shoot. And then he said, yes, of course. He wanted it documented as much as possible because this ceremony hadn't happened on Sadawal except for the last time when Mao was brought in as a navigator. Right? So this is this very rare event. It doesn't happen every week. It doesn't happen every decade. It was 50 years prior on Sadawal that it had been done. And he wanted to make sure that it was captured to put on video what it looked like and what it was. So yeah, so they did this whole pole ceremony. And it's, it's not only the actualization of being able to physically navigate, but it's being a light or a beacon or a leader in your community, that there's much more depth than just, okay, you're a navigator, you can go out to sea and find these islands. Well, the way I, I saw it, mm -hmm. you're also given the responsibility of, as keeper of the, this knowledge and the responsibility of making sure this knowledge is preserved and passed down. Absolutely. He's basically, first and foremost, charging them with they have to be teachers, that this knowledge has been passed down for arguably 3,000 years to him through his grandparents and the grandparent before that and before that. 
and he's standing there at the edge of this cliff, looking around, who is he going to pass it on to? And that this ceremony says formally to these individuals, you are now charged with this. You're standing on the cliff, and you have to find the next set of students to make sure that this is this unbroken chain. And what do you want people to take away from this film? If they can take away that one person can make a difference and change the trajectory of a whole culture, then imagine the power of what we do if we work together. Spoken like a true crew member. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much. Oh. It was a wonderful film. Hello, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. That was Na'olehu Anthony. He was talking about his film, Papa Mao, The Wayfinder. Papa Mao died of complications from diabetes on July 12, 2010. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Holua, from the CD, The Legend, performed by National Heritage Fellow Ledward Ka'apana. Use courtesy of Rhythm and Roots Records. Special thanks to Francine Blythe and Carrie Engel from National Geographic. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, visual artist William Wakeman. To find out how Artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.